Turn with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. As you, as you are probably well aware, and just to set this, this text in its context, uh, Paul has begun to address the Corinthians con- concerning the divisions that are in their midst. If you, if you look back in chapter 1, verse 10, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same things, and that there be no divisions among you but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment, and so on. In chapter 2, it's, it's not immediately evident, but he really has not left that main theme. I, I hesitate to call it a digression, because it really isn't, but he, he begins to discuss the ministry and its function, and we're going to read about that here in chapter 2. But he's going to use this material to bend back around to his main theme concerning their unity. Because after all, they are dividing, at least in a measure, over their teachers. And part of the point that uh, the apostle is trying to make is, here you have this unity, but their teachers, over whom they're dividing, are actually unified in that ministry. They have um, uh, some difference in role and function in particulars, but all unified toward one and the same action. It's the body imagery applied to the ministry, each acting according to the gifts, the graces, and the opportunities that have been given. So this is really not a a digression. He is coming back uh, to his main theme in the coming chapters. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, but not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things that God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. 
For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man, but the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And there is an application immediately before us If we are to understand his word read and preached, we need the help of the Spirit of God. I I have had the experience, and I'm not alone. Isn't it interesting how um, the Bible, all things considered, is not a large book? And down through the ages, many people, converted and unconverted, have read it. But it remains a closed book until the Spirit of God is pleased to open it. With respect to the unbelieving mind, it's closed altogether. It's amazing how there can be reading and yet so little understanding. Is there any other book that you can think of that's quite like that? People read it and they don't, they don't understand it. They don't see. But even as a, as a Christian person, I, I have read and some passages have been well nigh meaningless to me at various parts. They were closed, but then what a difference in the day when the Spirit came and opened the mind and the understanding. And I start to wonder, and I think that this might be, um, at least in my experience, a demonstration of what Paul is talking about. And then I wonder, how is it that I never understood it or saw it before? It It seems so plain there now. So as we proceed into preaching of God's word let us go trusting our God because there is no other way for us to engage in our discipleship turn with me to Leviticus chapter 19 it just now occurred to me what a strange sentence this is as I was getting ready to come here of course baptism was very much on my mind and so I was thinking about our young people, the, the rising generation, the weirdness of the sentences, and my mind traveled to Leviticus, which you, you don't normally think. Young people, Leviticus, of course. But uh, recently in, in family worship, we have been working our way through uh, Leviticus. I have found it a very helpful thing. Strangely enough, very helpful for young people. In, in some ways, as far as practical demonstrations. We have had sacrament this, this morning, the way that um, signs make hidden spiritual realities 
uh, tangible. Like um, if any of you sat through a Sunday school where the teacher was putting um, little figures on a flannel graph board to help young people. Um, God does that in, in um, these wonderful ordinances that are pre- presented displaying gospel truth. Just a quick illustration. That sounds all abstract. So, um, like, the, the idea of the imputation of sin is very difficult. Theologians have wrangled. Uh, people who are experts in law have wondered how this thing can be, which is actually a second level of contemplation. The first thing you want to know is, is it real? And then second level, you think, well, well how can it be? How does it work? How is it exercised? But in explaining it to a child, you say, and they walked up, And they placed their hand upon the head of the animal. And they confessed their sins. The animal's not done anything. And then I've done this with my children. But who deserved to die? Well, you did. But who dies? The animal dies, right? So this lively depiction of imputation. You have to know it's real before you can proceed to reflections on how does it work? How can it be? And so on. So Leviticus, far from being uh, useless, is very useful in its vivid displays of of gospel truths and and dynamics. With this in view, look with me at at Leviticus chapter 19. Uh, Some things ceremonial, but many things moral in this passage. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel and say unto them, Ye shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And if I might pause, you might think of the lesson that we learned about that this morning. Ye shall fear every man his mother and his father and keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Turn ye not unto idols, nor make to yourselves molten gods. I am the Lord your God. And if ye offer a sacrifice of peace offerings unto the Lord, ye shall offer it at your own will. It shall be eaten the same day ye offer it, and on the morrow. And if aught remain unto the third day, it shall be burnt in the fire. And if it be eaten at all on the third day, it is abominable. It shall not be accepted. Therefore, everyone that eateth it shall bear his iniquity, because he hath profaned the hallowed thing of the Lord. And that soul shall be cut off from among his people. And when ye reap the harvest of your land, Thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of thy field, neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest. And thou shalt not glean thy vineyard, neither shalt thou gather every grape of thy vineyard. Thou shalt leave them for the poor and stranger. I am the Lord your God. Ye shall not steal, neither deal falsely, neither lie one to another. And ye shall not swear by my name falsely, neither shalt thou profane the name of thy God. I am the Lord. 
Thou shalt not defraud thy neighbor, neither rob him. The wages of him that is hired shall not abide with thee all night until the morning. Thou shalt not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but shall fear thy God. I am the Lord. Ye shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. But in righteousness shalt thou judge thy neighbor. Thou shalt not go up and down as a talebearer among thy people, neither shalt thou stand against the blood of thy neighbor. I am the Lord. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. Ye shall keep my statutes. Thou shalt not let thy cattle gender with a diverse kind. Thou shalt not sow thy field with mingled seed. Neither shall a garment mingled of linen and woolen come upon thee. And whosoever lieth carnally with a woman that is a bondmaid, betrothed to an husband, and not at all redeemed, nor freedom given her, she shall be scourged. They shall not be put to death, because she was not free. And he shall bring his trespass offering unto the Lord, unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, even a ram for a trespass offering. And the priest shall make an atonement for him with the ram of the trespass offering before the Lord for his sin which he hath done. And the sin which he hath done shall be forgiven him. And when he shall come into the land and shall have planted all manner of trees for food, then ye shall count the fruit thereof as uncircumcised. Three years shall it be as uncircumcised unto you, it shall not be eaten of. But in the fourth year, all the fruit thereof shall be holy to, the pra- to praise the Lord withal. And in the fifth year shall ye eat of the fruit thereof, that it may yield unto you the increase thereof. I am the Lord your God. Ye shall not eat anything with the blood, Neither shall ye use enchantment nor observe times. Ye shall not round the corners of your heads, neither shalt thou mar the corners of thy beard. Ye shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor print any marks upon you. I am the Lord. Do not prostitute thy daughter to cause her to be a whore, lest the land fall to whoredom and the land become full of wickedness. Ye shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Regard not them that have familiar spirits, neither seek after wizards to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. 
Thou shalt rise up before the hoary head and honor the face of the old man and fear thy God. I am the Lord. And if a stranger sojourn with thee in your land, ye shall not vex him. But the stranger that dwelleth with you shall be unto you as one born among you. And thou shalt love him as thyself. For ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Ye shall do no unrighteousness in judgment, in meat yard, in weight, or in balance. Just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin shall ye have. I am the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore shall ye observe all my statutes and all my judgments and do them. I am the Lord. I remember some, some years ago, um, in the midst of normal life, workaday life, the normal rhythms of things when nothing particularly extraordinary one way or another is happening. Uh, it's the routine, it's the, the habitual. And with respect to some things, there's nothing wrong with that. And Amanda said to me one day, something that ended up being really important to me. She said, um, let's go out and spend some time together. And I said, Oh, and she said, listen, Dilde, this thing doesn't run on autopilot. <laughs> and I said, I think you're right about that. And, and so we did. There is a certain kind of coasting that can happen in uh, relationships. There, there are routines and there are habits. They are wholesome and they, and they have their place, but they can also blunt effort and intentionality, sometimes the things that are necessary, not just for the normal rhythms of the relationship, but for growth in it. And I thought about you guys, our young people, and, and what it is to make progress in our relationship with the Lord, because we are called upon to ever be growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not sufficient in the eyes of the Lord for us to hold fast, like just steady, or I'm just kind of sitting here. In some ways, motionlessness in the faith is regression because he's told us to be growing, to ever be advancing, to ever be going forward. That has its... Um, affectional element to it. We constantly need to be roused. But there are also mechanical things, things with respect to discipline that need to be happening, and they don't happen without intention. As I was going over this passage with, with my children, I was struck by verse 3. So, so look there with me, if you will. Ye shall fear every man his mother and his father and keep my Sabbaths. 
I am the Lord your God. And I was, I was struck by an unexpected juxtaposition of elements. Fear mother and father. Keep the Sabbath. The scripture, obviously those things aren't inconsistent or contradictory. Obviously they can go together. But the question it left me with was, why did the Lord put them here together in this way? You don't just have an itemized list. You do have things that are being related one to another throughout the, throughout the passage and really throughout the Bible. You want to do a study on this. Read the book of James. And what you'll find is that the sections... Each like little unit has its own integrity. All of the parts cohere and pretty obviously. But then a next part comes that deals with a different subject matter altogether. And you're kind of left if, you, if you're the kind of person that wonders about these things. So why did he move from the one thing to the other? What's the connection between the things in his, in his mind? For example, in the opening, uh, he talks about rejoicing in the trouble that comes to you, very counterintuitive. He talks about how that causes us to grow. And then immediately he goes to wisdom and asking wisdom from the Lord. And we can be left with the, the question, what's the connection between these things? I, I found an old Reformed interpreter by the name of Laurentius, who I thought really excelled on the connections between the passages. And he pointed out that uh, it's very hard for us, such as we are, to see a connection between our pain and progress, right? Because we're just right here, right now, suffering. And it's not always easy to see in what way this might be for my good. And so Laurentius said, so we must pray for wisdom because it requires a profound wisdom to see the connection between my current sufferings and what will be my ultimate progress in these things, right? So he's starting to show the connection. Why I was curious about connection. And sometimes the Lord is not pleased to spell out the connection. So they become occasions for meditation. Why, why put these things together? And it seemed to me, I, I thought and I thought and I thought, and then I kind of surveyed, looked, poked around in the history of interpretation and it was pointed out again and again that these are principal or primary means for spiritual growth. And for those of you that are younger in the faith, these are strong means, powerful means for getting a good start in the Christian life. Uh, let, me, let me do something. Let me just try to set this in, in context Hopefully I can give you something where you will never despair again of reading in Leviticus and help you to find where this passage fits in the body as a whole. I love, I love simple outlines, things that you can remember. And if I were to divide the book up into two parts, the first 10 chapters have to do with the worship of God with a primary emphasis, remember last night, upon the revelation of redemption Christ as sacrifice and Christ as priest. And then what does that do but open up the way to relationship with the holy God? And so beginning in chapter 11 to chapter 17, you have various prescriptions for walking 
with this holy God, right? So Jesus opens the way for it. And then it, that, that manner of walking is described in the, in the rest of the book. It's in a very Old Testament kind of way. But if you can't remember anything else about outlining, just remember that first 10 chapters, Jesus as priest and sacrificial victim. And then the rest of it, practical instruction for life. But of all three kinds, you've got prescriptions for state, you've got prescriptions for church and ceremony, and then you've got moral. And in chapter 19, you probably notice that um, heavy on exposition of the Ten Commandments, a little lighter on some ceremonies that are attached to those Ten Commandments, in this particular passage, comparatively light on judicial things, but that's not true everywhere. We might have a reference to it, and that person shall be cut off from his people, and, and so on. All right? So just to, now let's break down the outline just a little bit, because it's important. If you remember anything else, if you remember one thing about Le- Leviticus, it's, it's all about our Jesus, his redemption and walking with him. So that makes it precious. That makes learning very particular things about ceremonies, it makes it sing. It makes it lovely. It stops being a burden and you start to wonder, well, what's being revealed? What particular thing is he communicating to us about himself and about the redemption that he has brought to us? Chapters 1 through 7, the system of sacrifices. from, From ancient times, we had at least the burnt offering and the peace offering. Right? So that goes way back to the uh, first institution of sacrifice, and you see it in the early ages of Genesis. God is now going to reveal more about the one sacrifice of Christ by, by adding other sacrifices. So you get a sin offering and a trespass offering added to that and a meat offering. There's, so you've got different kinds that are added, and then you get an elaboration of the details of how to do it. If I were to try to sum all of this up, it's not that they point to like multiple sacrifices, but it's, it's as if Christ's one sacrifice is a gem with so many relations that you need a way to spin the gem to look at the different facets of it. So the burnt offering, for example, inasmuch as it's totally consumed and all offered to the glory of God really magnifies how God is glorified in the sacrifice of Christ. Sin offering brings the atoning aspect right immediately into the foreground. If you were to ask me, how does that differ from the tre- trans, uh, trespass offering? I would say, I don't know exactly, but it's worth thinking about, right? Because there was a separate one that was instituted for that. And there's probably about 20 different really good theories about why they were distinguished. I just don't know what the answer is. But then you have a peace offering, which a large portion of it is remanded back to the offerer. God is accepting us to table fellowship. That's something that Christ's sacrifice does for us. So you've got the one sacrifice, but the gem is being spun. But then we need to know that he's not only the offered one, but he is the offerer. And so you get instructions on the consecration of the priest, the description of the priesthood. And then you start to understand a little bit more why God would re, would react so sharply when the priests miscarried in the following of the instructions. 
Christ and his gospel is being represented to the people and fundamentally what they have done is they have misrepresented Christ and the gospel to the people. And the people will then never forget, that's not right. That's not the gospel. God has contradicted the action of our functionaries in, in a way that will ring down through, through the ages. And if you'll remember, in, in bypassing the, the altar of burnt offering and going in to offer incense, because they're supposed to take a coal only from, from the altar, you only approach God upon a, a sacrifice offered and accepted. And then we can go in with our, with our prayers and with our, our praises. They came with some other fire from some other place, accepting, expecting acceptance by their own doing. And God said no in a very powerful and vivid way. Paul will do it didactically in the New Testament with the Galatians. No, you're not coming in your own merits. But this is really very much the same lesson just worked out in in the symbolism of the sacraments that were given to the ancient people but with Christ revealed then the way to relationship is is opened and we need to know about relationship so in verses 11 through 16 you get the the differentiation and again remember this morning we didn't plan this I promise you get the unclean and the clean distinguished, right? Ceremonially, the, the unclean and the clean, the, the things that belong in the midst of the people of God and the things that don't. But because we are always contracting uncleanness, you then in chapter 16 have the remedy for it in the day of the atonement. And I won't further elaborate, but the, but the ceremony of sacrifices is enlarged. Additional details are added. And you have that one time in the year when the blood of the atonement is taken by the high priest into the Holy of Holies. In some ways, this was the fullest display in a year of the gospel truths, the most elaborate ceremony, as it were. So... Leviticus 16 is a, is a fine chapter to study down to its minutest details to see what God is revealing to us about the gospel and what he was teaching his people in, in ancient times. Uh, beyond that, beginning in uh, 17 to 27, you get practical prescriptions with respect to holiness of all three kinds what it means to be holy as a people contemplated as a body politic, right? So this would be judicial holiness, if you will. You get things prescribed for ecclesiastical function. This would be holiness with respect to ceremonial law. And then you get, it comes all the way down to the moral, what it means to live, uh, to, uh, to walk with the holy God in holiness as an individual, you've got all three of these levels, and very much like real life, um, it's not like we're going to do two chapters on one kind and two chapters on another kind and two chapters on another kind. Much more like real life, they're put all together, right? So you think about your walk with the Lord today, it's not like, well, we do one day, we walk personally with the Lord, and then the next day we walk with our families with the Lord, and then the next day we walk with the church with the Lord. It really just all ends up being slammed together, 
on a on a day by day basis, and you you very much get that kind of feel. Just one chapter to point out: Chapter twenty six is very interesting. It it will evoke the end of Deuteronomy for you because it's the blessings and the curses of um, walking with holiness, blessing, or failing to do so, and the curses that will attend that as as a covenant people. So now just to take a narrower uh, focus, chapters 18 through 20 are pretty clearly a unit, uh, and they hang together pretty well in their, in their logic. Chapter 18 is very famous. It, it deals largely with um, seventh commandment sins, uh, and in some uncomfortable Detail, but that's ever coupled with an exhortation that they're to be holy, walking with the Lord according to his commandments, and not adopt the manners of the peoples. They came out of Egypt, where at least some of these things were done. They're going into Canaan, where almost all of these things are done, but they are not to allow those things to encroach upon their own walk and behavior. Walk the way that the Lord told you, not the way that's being illustrated all around you. Not a half bad lesson for say right now. Then in chapter 19, if I were to try to characterize it, and it's not easy to outline, like I said, a lot of it just seems to be pressed up together the way real life is, but it's basically an exposition of the Ten Commandments. I won't, I won't do all of this, but if you work your way through, I bet you can identify all Ten Commandments. Right, So maybe that's something that you could do in the evening hours or, or tomorrow, but just work your way through it and see if you can find all 10. But all 10 are, are there. And there's some ceremonial things attached and a few judicial, judicial hints. Chapter 20 is where judicial law comes back into the foreground and the punishments for violation come into the foreground. And some of them are are frightful things to consider. Um, not the way that uh, the Western world tends to think about a lot of these things, but you see the you see the weight that God puts on those kinds of things. And to borrow the to borrow the earlier lesson, we need to think about these things, and if I might say so, feel about these things the way God feels about them, not the way that the the culture feels about them. If God, if God identifies something as sinful and says, this is really bad, this is abominable, but we look at the culture and they're like, well, it's not the best, but it's not that big a deal. We need to add our amen to what God is saying, right? But the tendency is to want to kind of slouch back to what the culture is saying because we're, we're in that stew all of the time. So really we find verse three in the midst of this Uh, exposition of the Ten Commandments and the fifth and the fourth are placed right here together. So just a a few words about uh, about the verse itself. I want you to notice first of all that what is characterized the action that's characterized here is is fear. I don't know about you but uh, have you ever noticed when the fear of the Lord comes up like all evangelical people start to get uncomfortable and they're starting to want to explain away the rhetoric. And so they'll say something like, well, it, you know, it just means respect or reverence. I was like, I was okay with about every word except just. (laughs) 
Um, but it's more like a, a recognition of who God is as the Holy One and who I am as a sinner. And it's not just respect, but it's the trembling that results when we, when we recognize that great reality that's in front of us. Well, interestingly enough, that same rhetoric is used here. So when you think about our culture and the way that they handle parents, you look at the way that um, young people are portrayed in relationship to their parents in, in culture, you have maybe the opposite. If you want to be happy and fulfilled in your life, you need to shake off the authority of your parents because, because you know what to do to be happy, but they don't. A little, little pop quiz for you. Do you expect to be wiser in 20 years than you are now? And everybody would say, yes, of course. I mean, for developing normally, that, that should happen. Even for unbelieving people, they should accrue experience and learn things and be wiser in 20 years than they are now. That's just normal development. But it's an odd thing that almost every 20-year-old esteems himself to be wiser than the 40-year-olds. That's weird, right? I grant that it could happen, but almost every 20-year-old thinks it. That's weird. And, uh, you know, even to apply it closer to myself, why is it that every 40-year-old will tend to think a lot of his wisdom as over against, say, every 60-year-old? Because if you were to ask me, do I expect to be wiser in 10 or 20 more years? I would say, yes, of course. I might speak personally. I've started to notice something about my own father. My, my dad is not a pushy fella. Not at all. Um, but sometimes he'll say things to me. I was recently talking to him about an economic matter. And he said something that caught my attention. And I've started to notice this from him. He didn't tell me what to do. He just said, well, that's a young man's perspective. But now having thought about these things and the way that younger people relate to older people, that really caught my attention. He's trying to tell me something. And, he, and in saying it, he doesn't believe that I have the experience and perspective that he has. So now I'm, now I'm paying attention. Like, so what is, it that you're, what is it that you're wanting to say to me? What is it that you're, that you're wanting to tell me? You understand something. But you're looking at me and you, you have a sense that I'm not understanding you. So what is it that you're trying to say to me? I try to open the door to him whenever he gives those kinds of hints because he has 25 more years of life. He knows what it is to be my age. I don't know what it is yet to be, to be his age. And so when he says things like that, it matters so our culture is going to be, you don't need your parents. If you want to be happy, you need to shake off the authority of your parents because they're just north of idiocy. You really know. You're the one that really understands what it takes to be happy. Interestingly, that's the inverse of the scripture. Honor thy father and thy mother that thy days might be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. So culture says you want to be happy. Ignore your parents. Bible says if you want to be happy, have a long life and good days and honor your parents. Listen to them. Open your mind and your heart to what they're trying to communicate to them. And if you don't understand 
all of what they're saying or why they're saying it, it's all right. Just listen and keep listening and keep trying to understand because there's wisdom available for you. And the sad fact of the matter is when we won't take wisdom that's offered to us in words, whether it's the words of the Bible or the words of parents, the Lord still has a way of teaching us those things, but it's the way of the rod and it's the school of pain. And as a person who has no pain in life, I would spare you if I could. You can actually avoid it. Not all of it. Nobody can. But opening ears to people who know, this is a way to avoid that. Interestingly enough, though, to go a little further, this is stronger rhetoric than honor. This is stronger rhetoric even, I think, than obey. This is to look at your parents and see the shadow of the Most High behind them. So when you look at your parents, you, having lived with your parents, you know their strengths and their weakness. Mom and dad are good at these things. They're not good at these things or whatever. They're people. They have their mistakes, their failings. If they're functioning properly, they've probably confessed a lot of those failings, right? repented of a lot of those things <laughs> with respect to you. So you know they, like, there's no pretense. But the, but the honoring, nay, the fearing of parents really doesn't have to do with who they are or what they've done. They don't have to earn this from you, baby. God is standing behind them. And you fear them because God says so, not because of what they've done or what they've earned from you. Although they probably earned from you more than what you, <laughs> what you suspect. Paul says, requite your parents. You know, you know that's old-fashioned language, but you know what it means? It means pay them back because you owe them. Requite your parents. And when you one day when you hold your own baby and you're looking down in that little face, you'll realize, wow, he can't do anything. <laughs> if I should put him down and leave him alone, he can't do anything. You want to hear a story? So my... Like my, my firstborn son couldn't figure out how to nurse, which was distressing. Like he can't even figure out to eat, how to eat. He doesn't know how to do anything. And, and even negatively, he, he had those like, the, the nervous system would just fire and he'd slap himself in the face. And the more, like he'd get upset and it would just keep. So we had to, we call it swaddling, which is just a fancy way of saying we tied him up, but we don't want to go to jail, right? We, <laughs> We tied him up so he'd stop slapping himself. He can't do anything. And that really continues for years and years and years. You, you pay for them. You love them. You clean them up. You protect them. You dress their wounds when they, when they get hurt. And it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. You owe more than what you think that you do. And I'm not making that up. God says that. But at the end of the day, that's not why the fear is due. And probably in and of themselves, maybe they're not worthy of that. But God stands behind it. He stands behind the office. Think about the way that, um, that David handled Saul when he perceived that the anointing of the Lord was yet there on him. And you start to get a sense. It's, this is not about Saul's person, although David loves Saul pretty clearly. But that's not what he's constantly pointing to when he keeps refusing to hurt Saul. 
God stands behind this office. I'm, I will not stretch out my hand against him. I will wait. God has promised me the kingdom. I'll wait until he does that, but I'm not going to rush that procedure. This belongs to the Lord, and he belongs to the Lord in that, in that office. So if I were to commend something to you, and it's, it's, really, it's really simple, it's really basic. I'll give you some clues to like, pick it up from your parents when they're doing it. When you find your parents repeating themselves about something, that's because they're looking at you and they're thinking, you're not understanding what I'm saying. And you might think you're understanding, but they're repeating themselves because they're looking at you and they know you're not, you don't understand. <laughs> so you should, you should pause and kind of reset. Don't get frustrated by the repetition, but try to focus your mind. What, do you, what is it that you're trying to say to me? What is it that you see that I'm doing or the direction that I'm heading that's problematic? And what are you trying to say to me? And part of this is honoring God. There's a fear that's there. But also part of it is just your own well-being. This is about getting a good start in life. And nobody gets a good start in life relying upon what wisdom a teenager has gathered. Right? It's like people get a good start in life because they've reaped uh, the wisdom that has come from parents and and the best possible matrix and you all have it available to you is when you have when you have parents that have not only had experience but they have had uh, experience and exercise in applying God's word to life then you have the best possible matrix of things they're bringing the word of God to bear upon your your situations mine that that's a, that's like a gold mine gold mine is set set in front of you go go mine every every nugget you can try to pillage the mind and take away like what's in your parents heads and what's in their hearts you want that you don't want to reject that you want that you want to take that with you because that puts you on a path a good path for uh, uh, for life a recent experience I had with one of my one of my own sons and these things matter because a lot of times as young people you can't you can't have the experience of an of an older person um, but one of my sons asked me, he said, Dad, are you, are you, are you sad that Mom left? Are you depressed about, about these things? Are you lonely? Because com- compared to the way it was, you know, people are in and out of your house all the time. You don't have people here all the time. And I said, son, I, I, I spend exactly no seconds every day feeling like I'm ever alone. I love it when you guys are here. That's one kind of blessing. But when you're not here, my, my life is very full. And I never feel like I'm alone. I always feel the presence of Christ with me. I, so my life is full and rich. I like it when you're here. But it, it's not like blessedness leaves. And he said, that doesn't sound real. And I said, okay, but just listen. Because it is real. The Bible talks about it. And I've been walking with the Lord now these, these 30 years. And I've, I've found quiet and rest and constant companionship in him. I've been 18. I know it might be hard for you to, to see that. But that's a real thing. 
and you should just listen and think about it and maybe even desire it. We don't, uh, we don't have the experience until we have it, right? And to know that it's real and to know that it's there, we have to hear about it. Our hearts have to be open. We have to be ready, right? Also think about the benefit of family harmony in church life uh, when uh, parents are not just honored but they're but they're feared just think about how many upsets and contentions and in, in family and then in congregation would be avoided if just that one principle was uh, observed for just that one reason because God says so the end that's that's it he's he stands behind this and so there's nothing for us to do but tremble in front of what he has uh, commanded. The second thing that is that is observed here is uh, the Sabbath day. Again, I, I seriously doubt that we feel about the Sabbath day the way that we should. And I know that we are we are Sabbath people, but we live in the midst of a people that don't care anything about it, don't understand its value. If you're like me, you probably came to understand the logic of it before you felt its benefit and its and its blessedness. So um, I grew up playing football. And after I was finished playing football, I liked to watch football. And the NFL likes to think that the Lord's Day belongs to them. And for all of my upbringing, it did. But then eventually I became, I became convinced that the Sabbath was the right thing to do. And so, and so I turned off the television and it, and it wasn't easy at first. I just kind of knew that it was the right thing to do, but then something happened and of course it happened. What could, can a game compare to fellowship with the Lord? This is another one of those strange things we do when we talk to people, other Christian people about the Lord's day. We're frequently, we'll do the, the logic, we'll say things like, well, you know, exegetically, that fourth commandment's right in the middle of another nine, and all of those are moral. How, how are you plucking that one out? And isn't there morality in it? Everybody knows that um, the performance of duty has a time frame attached to it. If I say I love my kids, but I spend 14 hours a day serving my students and 14 minutes with my kids and I say I love them will you believe that see what I'm saying the tension the the tensions there we can we can say a lot of this well eventually like so we can do the logic but like if you tell a Christian person well just imagine just imagine for a second like the Lord the king of heaven and earth to which all other authorities are subordinate, has actually set me free to come into his presence and refresh myself in him, enjoy him, delight in him, get together with the people of God and enjoy that common delight. Even if you couldn't convince yourself that it had been commanded, don't you wish that it were true? Isn't it a strange thing that happens like, you're like, I'm, I keep the Sabbath day. You're a legalist. Legalist? I think he just set me free. And that nobody can tell me any different. My boss can't tell me to come into 
work? The magistrate can't tell me what to do? The high king of heaven and earth has set me free. And there can't be anything better than being in his presence. So I loved football, but I, I didn't love football like that. <laughs> and uh, how happy I am when every, every Sabbath day comes. I'm happy when they come, and I'm always sad to see them go because of the freedom that's been afforded to me simply to enjoy him and those things. But that enjoyment of him, remember your chief end is not just to glorify him, but to enjoy him. And that's, that's the fullness of life. Earlier this week, we were having a conversation and Edwards came up. Edwards is famous for his um, judgment sermons. Even in his own day, the other ministers complained, you know, like, what about these sermons? And he answered, he said, well, the Bible, like the prophets threaten the people with covenant sanctions. I, I'm a Bible preacher. What do, you, what do you want me to do? I think you have to take it up with the author. This is not my problem, right? But then later researchers did a statistical analysis on his themes and his word choice. And his favorite theme, which seemed lost on everybody, was the loveliness of Christ and the beauty of the divine being. And you, you see that, that delight in God. Like, I want to... I want to think about God, to think about his attributes and who he is, is beautiful. You think about how constancy came up from, from the psalm and you think inconstancy is ugly. I know because I do it. It's, it's yucky. I, I do it right sometimes and then I, but never all right on the inside. That's one kind of inconstancy. And then, and then I went from this sort of half thing to no, none at all. And then, I, and it's ugly and it's a mess and everything else. But, but perfect stability, faithfulness. And, and then when it seems too abstract, he gives us the incarnate Savior. And you can watch it work out in a, in a human life. And everybody knows it's the, most, it's the most beautiful human life. Like, look at that. Everybody knows that that's the... That's the best. Believers, unbelievers, everybody knows it's, it's excellent. And so that's what Edwards would do. He used to ride out into, into the field to contemplate the, the beauty of the divine being. When I first encountered that language, I was like, who even talks like that? That's, that's amazing. Something amazing is going on here. And they say he would, his church didn't pay him enough to get very much paper, so he'd write really small, which the church has now been having to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to try to decipher. But anyway, <laughs> he, but he'd write really small. And then he would, when he was writing, like he'd, he'd pin the things on his jacket, and his wife said he looked like he came back from a snowstorm with all of these, <laughs> these papers pinned all over him about the things that he had thought about as he was thinking about... Um, like the, the glorious majesty of God or the, the gentleness, the lowliness, the meekness, the sweetness of the Savior to poor sinners. And he's pinning these things all over his body. Well, the Lord has opened a space for you to do that, right? And we've got a lot of things that he's calling us to do, a lot of things he's commanding us to do. But think about the great mercy. Like those things tend to want to be uh, all-consuming, but then he steps in and he says, that's enough. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to block off this time. And during this time, it's you and me and nobody can tell you no. And I'm like, that's the best thing in the world. <laughs> I love it. 
I love that. But it's something beyond the, the logic of it. As I've told you before, it's about, seeing, it's about seeing Christ. And as we spend time in his presence, we start to look more like him. We start to, we start to grow. And all of this went into, as I was looking at this verse in the coherence, if you want a good start in life so that you can run well, if you want your relationship to deepen, that's not just the affectional elements, it's not just stirring it up, though sometimes we have to do that too, but it's these practical things. Listen to your parents. I promise they're trying to help you. They're not trying to hurt you or limit you. They're trying to help you in your growth with the Lord. And if you open your mind and your heart, you probably will be helped. But then the Sabbath day has been given as a bulwark for your piety. The Lord fends everything else off and gives you time to climb up into his lap and enjoy him, enjoy that intimacy. Enjoy reclining on him and knowing that you're loved and that you're cared for. Sometimes I just marvel. And we went through some, some times when we were really, really poor. And I didn't work on the Sabbath day and we still ate. And I, it was a week by week reminder that I'm actually, it's an optical illusion. I'm not taking care of myself. Because on the day when I stopped taking care of myself, I was still cared for. And then I fell unconscious. We call that sleep. I couldn't care for myself then either. And then I still woke up. The Lord is actually caring for me. But again, sweetness and tenderness, like I, I have you. you, you work because that's part of your life with me. But I take care of you. That's not a stress that belongs to you. I take care of you. You just do what I tell you to do. You just walk. But I take care of you at the, at the end of the day. So remember the Sabbath day uh, to keep it holy. And I can tell you for sure that you will, you will never regret not one single minute that you spent with the Lord. Probably at the end of thing, you won't be proud of all the minutes that you spent on various things, but you'll never regret one of those. And open your minds and your hearts to your parents. They can help you, and it's important. God has given them to you as a gift to help you grow to avoid the, the pitfalls of life and to help you run well. And if you do it right, you can absorb their wisdom in a small fraction of the time that it took them to attain it, which is what makes advance from generation to generation possible. Just like a math book, the principle's really no different. Somebody took a lot of time to figure out these things and they hand it to you in five seconds. And so then you can take that and you can build upon it. And the wise do so. Let's uh, fulfill the command of James and ask the Lord to help us in this regard. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are encouraged. Thou didst take foolish Corinthians and then place them in Christ Jesus, who became to them wisdom. And we know that thou art no respecter of persons. We ask that thou wouldst pluck us out of our backwardness, 
your slowness to learn our folly and place us in Christ Jesus indeed so that we might begin to accrue wisdom, heaven-sent wisdom, wisdom that belongeth only to thee and which thou alone art able to give. We ask that thou wouldst forgive us. Thou hast sent truth in the scripture and also many means to help us and support us in the appropriation of it. We lament how frequently we have rejected those helps. But great is thy faithfulness. We believe that thou art able by the scriptures and by thy spirit to make us wise unto salvation and then to bring us along to perfection so that we might be thoroughly equipped for every single good work. We trust thee to this great end. And if we might spread our desire before thee, we do ask that thou wouldst um, help our, our young people, our next generation, to appropriate the lessons much more quickly so that after this sad period of stagnation for thy people in the Western world, there might be advance again and a fuller display a fuller testimony of thy truth. We ask that thou wouldst grant it so that thou mightest be glorified in us and in our descendants. And thou art worthy. Amen. Amen.